0: This episode is sponsored by Girls Can Crate. Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. How do they do it? Like us, Girls Can Crate believes that real women make the best heroes. And every month they deliver them to your doorstep. This episode is also made possible by our Patreon sponsors Ellen Gross, Jill Harrigan, Mandy and Virginia Booty, Mari B. Hedgecoth, Chantelle Oliver, Jamie Lang, Monique herricks pexado Morgan Graham, Kathleen Kerber, and Sandra Russo. Thank you to all our patrons. We couldn't make the show without you. This episode contains descriptions of violence that may be upsetting to some listeners.
1: Hi, Katie. Hi, Olivia.
0: What does it mean to be human? <laughs> I, I thought I'd start us out, you know, yeah. with something light and easy.
1: Since, right. You know, just a little chit chat. <laughs> well, those are the kinds of questions that one asks when one has been locked down for months exactly. and months. <laughs> all
0: right. So, all right. Maybe that's a little too vague. Maybe. Um, okay. So how can someone cease to be human.
1: Mm, (laughs) That's easier. Yeah. (laughs) I have no idea if I'm going to stick with this over the course of this episode, because I don't know what we're talking about. Here's the bold stance I'm going to take, and then I'll see if if I stick with it. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's impossible to become a non-human. I think anything humans do is human nature. And... (laughs) You can't be anything but human. Angel oh. or devil or monster. It's all within us. We have the potential to be all those things. That's mm, what I think. All right. That's what I think right now, anyway. <laughs> I I
0: think I agree with that. Mm.
1: I think that usually when we
0: call someone an animal or a monster, it's not wanting to acknowledge the truth about what humans can do and be and etc. Mm-hmm. But if everything mm-hmm. is human nature, yeah, <laughs> then, ha- <laughs> then how do we measure ourselves? I mean, if we want to ally with the better angels mm. of our human natures, there mm. has to be a line somewhere, right? There has to be a line where we say, this is a line I will not cross. Ah. I will not descend yeah. below this level because that, to me, mm-hmm. is inhumane often in the end right it comes down to the individual having to decide like this is my line i will not cross this line and that might look different for every person Mm -hmm. but the people who don't have a line scare me Mm. and i think scare us as a society based on
1: the things we watch on tv yeah yeah (laughs) i guess so i mean the people who don't have a line so to speak are what we call psychopaths and Right, serial killers. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we say this is a broken person. They don't have a line.
0: Yeah, and even that. Right, a broken person. So there is, there's something wrong mm. there. Yeah, yeah. Right? yeah. Something went wrong mm. somewhere in in this human organism. It's not functioning.
1: Oh yeah. Correctly. Right. All because of our our notions of how we can. Use maybe our minds and our willpower to overcome our animal natures and be something that's more than just a beast or a creature. And we should we should do those things, right? right? That's yeah. That is what being human means: is overcoming yeah. those lesser natures. Yeah, you're right. Or something. Being more right? than an animal. That's what it is to be human. Yeah. Mm. Interesting.
0: So our question to consider this week is. How can we remain human in inhuman circumstances? Huh. Today, I am going to tell you a story of two sisters named Truce and Freddie Overstegen. They grew up in Harlem, the Netherlands, Mm. the original Harlem, Mm -hmm. Harlem, in the 1930s. And at 14 and 16 years old, They became two of the most effective and most important assassins of the Dutch resistance.
1: What? (laughs) That took an unexpected turn, didn't it? Yes, it did. (laughs) Fourteen and sixteen-year-old Dutch sisters. Assassins. Assassins. (laughs) Tell me more.
0: I will. But first, I'm Olivia Mickle.
1: And I'm Katie Nelson, and this is What's-Her-Name. Fascinating women you've never heard of. To learn more about this
0: really unusual and wild story, I talked to Sophie Poldermans.
2: Hello, my name is Sophie Poldermans, and I'm the author of Seducing and Killing Nazis, Honey, Truce and Freddy, Dutch Resistance Heroines of World War II. And Freddy
0: Overstegen were raised by their mother alone in poverty conditions.
2: Mother who was divorced at the time, Trijntje van der Molen, and their little stepbrother Robbie in a tiny worker house. And already in 1934, they uh, offered shelter to Jewish refugees.
0: As the Third Reich is rising, refugees started just pouring in from Nazi occupied countries. In the Netherlands, it is illegal to shelter these refugees because they're not supposed to be in the country. Oh, wow. As little girls, Truce and Freddie even gave up their own beds to hide Jewish refugees.
2: And they were teenage girls when Nazi Germany occupied the Netherlands in 1940, being faced with the question what to do to adapt to this weird war situation or to resist. Their mother was very active in the the Communist Party, and uh, through context of their mother, they were introduced with this same Council of Resistance.
0: Truce and Freddy were already distributing anti-Nazi literature as children in the lead up to the war. And then as the war breaks out, they continue to do that. This family is not messing around when Mm -hmm. it comes to their responsibility in this situation. The leader of a local resistance group named Franz van der Veel approached them about doing more work for the resistance. Their mother agreed, and they began working with the Council of Resistance, which is a local resistance group in Harlem. Because these are the only two girls or women involved in the resistance in Harlem, the leaders of the Council of Resistance thought that these two might work very well together with another teenage girl who had just joined the resistance in harlem so they decided early on to bring them together the overshagen sisters are their cover story is that they are nurses because nurses are allowed to have bicycles and huh. no one else is no one else is allowed to have
1: bicycles
0: No, all the resources are going to the Nazis. The only women who are getting permits for bicycles are nurses. So the sisters go to the hospital where their aunt is actually a nurse and a member of the resistance. And another girl is shown in to meet with them.
2: Each of the girls thought that the other girl uh, might have been a spy for the Germans. So they didn't trust each other at all. Uh. Tension uh, was was really thick, and they were really scared. So then they were just staring at each other, waiting for the other to make the first move. They have their guns drawn,
0: <laughs> just in case this is an ambush, and they are just waiting. <laughs> Finally, suddenly, they all just become aware of the absurdity of this situation.
2: All of a sudden, they really started laughing like crazy, as only teenage girls can.
0: All three of them put their guns down on the table, <laughs> and they begin making plans. Oh, wow. And that is how the Overstegen sisters met Honey Shaft. This is a name that is as famous to Dutch people as Anne Frank. Wow. But most people outside of the Netherlands have probably never heard of her. Hm. She was 19 years old, a law school graduate. She has expressed a desire, as have the Overstegen sisters, to do more because they felt that things were getting so bad so fast, they needed to offer armed resistance. Mm. Again, these are teenagers. Yeah. And they have been trained, and prepared to become assassins.
2: They made a a great team. It's really funny because all three girls were completely different backgrounds and had completely different characters. Honey was really the intellectual, but at the same time a bit chaotic
0: and a bit dreamy. I think my sons would describe her as chaotic good Mm. in the uh, Dungeons & Dragons alignment system.
2: (laughs) Trice was a bit of a tomboy really, very down to earth, but also a natural leader. So Trice was the leader of the three. Mm. And then there was Freddie who was still very, very young, very pretty, girly girl.
0: <laughs> Freddie is the strategist. She makes the plans, she draws out the campaigns. She's fiery and fierce. And even though she's the fourteen year old, she is a huge part of the driving force behind all of
2: these missions that these girls carry out. Mm. So completely different characters, different backgrounds, but they had the same ideals. And very quickly,
0: these girls become invaluable to the resistance. They would flirt with German officers to discover vital information and secrets about the German infrastructure. They moved Jewish children to and from safe houses, hiding refugees. They bombed railways. Whoa. And most perilously, they assassinated Nazi officers. (laughs) This work took two forms. Sometimes, and this is what gets the most press, they would dress up like Muffin Girls.
2: Muffin Girls were girls who had relationships or alleged relationships with German soldiers. They would actually go to bars and then seduce, for example, high-ranking Nazi officers and then lure them into the woods. Where sometimes one of the male resistance workers
0: and sometimes one of the other girls would then shoot them.
1: Whoa. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa.
0: Other liquidations, as they called
2: them, were more straightforward and public. They would always uh, work in pairs. For example, they would ride their bicycles, and one would sit at the back and and shoot from there. So at least they had bicycles to (laughs) get away fast.
0: (laughs) Like they were doing bike-by shootings? Or like they were... Yes, and then or,
2: or they would ride their, their bicycles toward a particular target and then walk from there, shoot this person, and then use their bicycle to get away. Um, Whoa! <laughs> wow!
1: Yeah. What? What, like,
0: in broad daylight? In broad daylight, in the middle of the street, these are bike-by shootings. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it's wild it, it's how could the, they this get away with that is, it, exactly and i think part of that is the shock factor right no one expects this to happen but this is why the bikes are so necessary because they can get away
1: Whoa. because no one
0: else has a mode of transportation mm. and as long as they get out fast enough
1: they can get away Whoa. and i guess nobody would expect the nurse on the bike would be the one who just shot somebody. Exactly. Wow. So,
0: some of this is genuinely funny to think about. Franz Vanderveel, the head of this resistance group, a man, had to do her makeup.
2: Druze had never worn makeup before. <laughs> and um, she said, well, Franz would help us with the makeup. And then they would have bright red lipstick and they. They look, like, really hideous. <laughs> uh, so well, they also had a great laugh about it. Of course, that was also the, the nurse speaking again.
1: Yeah, that makes, like, the the amusing montage in in a movie version of this story, right? Teaching her how to walk sexy and right, yeah, exactly. high heels. Right, and-
0: <laughs> But the truth is, this is a terrifyingly dangerous thing that they're doing. Yeah. They have to get high-ranking Nazi officers to trust them enough to follow them out of the bar, into the woods, and then kill them. <laughs> These girls are in extremely high risk of terrible things happening to them, right? I I really struggled with how to tell this story because I think we need to be really careful not to get swept up into the girl power, Mm -hmm. voyeuristic pleasure of this story. And and remember what we're actually talking about here. These are teenage girls. And as much schadenfreude as it gives us to think about these Nazi officers falling at the hands of the people that they would least expect that is not an okay thing to ask children to do. Wow. Right? Yeah. So, and and like I said this is there are actually really funny and fun aspects of this story and I don't want to just rain on the parade of the amazingness of what they did. But here's the thing I find actually remarkable. These girls did this horrific, dangerous, terrifying work, but they somehow managed to Remain human while they did it. They created their own code of ethics. Oh, wow. In this impossibly inhuman situation, and they stuck to it. They're the only women in this group, and they decide together that they will have certain rules for what they do,
1: and they never break them. Interesting. Kind of like the pirate code or something.
0: <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it wasn't even, you know, the resistance group in general has their rules. But this is these three girls Mm. make their own code and say, here are the things
2: that we will not do. Ah, interesting. They really did what they did because they thought that this was the only way to achieve justice. Because it had to be done but they also try to remain human and they resolutely refuse to carry out missions where children were involved for example they actually got the assignment to kidnap the children of size uh, in Klart, the Reichskommissar here in, uh, in the Netherlands but they refused to do that and with one uh, female target who remained in, in her house all the time, so it was really hard. Finally she she came outside, but she had a, a little kid next to her. So then they also refused.
0: They are children
1: and wow. they are setting these rules of ethics. Yeah, that's profound.
0: They were very clear about why they were doing this and they didn't regret their work. But they had drawn these lines in the sand and they wouldn't cross them because they understood, I think, better than any of the adults around them that part of the danger of this work wasn't just losing their lives. They were worried about losing their souls. Yeah. They refused to give up their humanity no matter how inhumane the situation. Huh. And I find that completely remarkable. The fact that they knew that they could and must draw these boundaries for themselves. I think it's one of the most courageous things that they did sticking to these convictions, even when everyone around them tells them that they're wrong.
1: Yeah. It brings up an interesting question in my mind about agency, Mm. because today when we think about and talk about child soldiers, You know, we think of it as one of the worst things you can do to a child to pressure them into war and the trauma, you know, handing a child a gun is going to create permanent psychological damage. But then in this scenario, Hmm. then it becomes less clear whether it's a good or bad thing to do. Yeah. And, And they seem to have so much of their own agency. like. They yeah, appear I mean, the, to have chosen. Yeah, I mean, all of these girls chose this. Yeah.
0: yeah. They, they pushed to be given guns yeah. and given more to do.
1: So, you know, do we give them the agency over their lives and say this is them, this is all their choices? Or do we say these are children who got shoved into a nightmarish scenario and tried to save other yeah. children from falling into the same thing? Yeah. I don't know. I think that's one of
0: the most important questions about this story is what actually happened here? How do we talk about what happened here? Yeah. Do we celebrate or
1: mourn or can you do uh, both at it... the same time?
0: Yeah, or... <laughs> how do you
1: how do you do that? Let's pause for just a second to thank our sponsor Girls Can Crate is a unique subscription
0: box inspiring girls to believe that they can be and do anything. Every month, they'll deliver a brand new real-life Shiro to your front door. Introducing kids to a fascinating woman who changed the world. Complete with a gorgeous 28-page activity book, all the materials for two to three STEAM activities, like experiments, art projects, and more. Girls Can Crate is a lifesaver for anyone trying to homeschool, hybrid school, or just entertain their kids. And it's a wonderful educational surprise for any kid from ages 5 to 10. And for busy families, they have mini crates and digital subscriptions too. Check them out now at girlscancrate.com. And don't forget to use the code HERNAME, all one word, to get 20% off your first crate on any subscription. GirlsCanCrate, C-R-A-T-E dot com. Get it for your kid, keep it for yourself. So, as I said, most of what gets attention are these seduce and kill assassinations. But most of the assassinations probably were not seduce first missions they were just as we said out in the open killings and usually what happened is two of the girls would go out on a bike they would approach their target verify that this was the right person and then shoot them and then they would bike away that
1: is so wild
0: these bike by shootings look very simple they are actually the result of months and months of planning These are not just random Nazi officers. They're not just going to the bar and picking up any random Nazi officer. These are precisely planned and calibrated missions.
2: The entire resistance group would have meetings of uh, which particular Nazi target had to be eliminated. took a lot of planning. They didn't have the internet like we do, uh, or pictures even. So they had to know what their target looked like and maybe the route from work to home. So it took weeks really to prepare a mission like that. These are specific targets.
0: It's not enough to just be a Nazi officer. We're not just killing indiscriminately, we're saving lives. And those balances have to be weighed. How many lives will be saved by this liquidation? How many lives could be saved by this one? So these are often Nazi officers that are targets, but increasingly, as the war goes on, they are also Dutch traitors, Dutch collaborators, people who have sold out Jews or refugees hiding in safe houses to the government, have informed on resistance workers. These are the people who are being targeted. And this makes their other ethics rule even more important here. The girl's second rule was that they would always have the target themselves verify their identity before they shot them. It was critically important to them to make sure that they would never kill an innocent person. Wow. This means they have to slow down, talk to the target, ask them, are you really such and such before they shoot them.
2: Wow. So this
0: means there's more opportunity to be caught, right? there's more chance they'll be recognized and stopped Yeah. but it also means they have to interact with this human being that they are about to kill they have to speak to them and see them as a human being in the seconds before they kill them Mm. this just seems so difficult to me and I think it shows just how important it was to them that their work be right and righteous even if it endangered their own lives. Wow. But they also didn't second-guess themselves. Once they had taken a mission, they were all in. Truce Overstegen told Sophie Poldermans, Once I was confronted with an SS officer who was killing a small baby by hitting it against a wall. The father and the sister had to watch.
2: Hmm."
0: I shot that guy right there and then. That wasn't an assignment, but I don't regret it. Wow. So that killing is outside of the rules of how the resistance is supposed to operate, but it still is within their own code of ethics. Mm. And so she shot that guy right there and then. Mm.
2: How many people did they kill? We don't know. It's not known how many people they liquidated, how many of those missions they, they carried out. Freddie would always respond uh, with, well, we were soldiers, little ones, but still they were soldiers, and you mm-hmm. never ask a soldier that question.
0: There are specific liquidations that certain of the girls talked about later, and wow, and there's news reports as people are being shot in the street by girls on bicycles. <laughs> um those things were getting. Reported, although the Nazi regime was trying to cover that up also because this work was strategic and specific and meant to save lives. It was also a wildly effective psychological campaign. Mm. The Nazis were completely freaked out by this. Huh? I mean, imagine, right? The entire Nazi worldview is built on this fascist machismo, right? That women are inferior, that... These are the supermen, the biggest, toughest, best men yeah. in the world. And they're getting routinely assassinated by girls.
1: So did the Nazis know that it was girls?
0: Yes. it. You know, as these men disappear from the bar, I'm not sure how long it took, but at some point they have to start to realize, right? Anyone who goes off to the woods disappears mm. because they would bury them. They would shoot them take their uniform for the resistance to use and bury them.
1: Wow. Immediately. So
0: (gasps) these Nazi officers were just disappearing. Mm. But these street liquidations were very public and Hane Shaft especially became notorious. She had bright red hair so she became the number one most wanted member of the resistance. Whoa. They were desperate to catch her because she was completely demoralizing the army. Wow. All three of these girls were completely destabilizing and freaking out the troops.
1: How did they get away and with it? How could they stay safe when, like, the Nazis knew who they were? So they they didn't know their names, right? And they didn't know who they
0: were who they were. Mm. They themselves, you know, they're moving people to safe houses, but they are also themselves being moved around and shuffled around from city to city around the Netherlands. These girls are notorious in their anonymity, and the Rotaringa Mädchen, the redhead girl, is target number one.
2: Hanne Hoft also had to dye her red hair black so she wouldn't get recognized, and she would wear glasses made out of window glass. Truce would often dress up as a man because <laughs> she was already Tom So, yeah, they had to be really, really
0: careful. There's a photograph that we have on our website of Truce dressed as a man and Hani with her hair dyed and her glasses taken by a resistance member before they go out on a mission. One fascinating cameo side note here for listeners familiar with the story of Corey Tenboom. Yeah the author of The Hiding Place, yeah. famous anti-Nazi resistance family from the Netherlands. In February 1944, when the Ten Boom family's home is raided, 30 people are arrested and the entire family is sent to concentration camps, the big famous yeah. raid that sends them all to the camps. There were six people left stranded in the hidden compartments of the Ten Boom house. Like the, the Nazis didn't find They didn't find them. And so these people are stranded in the house with guards around and cannot leave. Mm. Two of those people were Truce and Freddy Overstegen. What? Who were hiding in this safe house. What? And they were only able to escape from the house by climbing up through the ceiling and across the roofs of nearby buildings. Wow. Until Freddy fell through a skylight and would have died, except that building happened to be a mattress shop. What? <laughs> and she landed on a mattress. The sisters were able to hide in the shop until the morning when they were able to escape and alert the resistance to the four Jewish refugees still trapped in the safe house, who were then rescued the next day by policemen who were sympathetic to the resistance.
1: That is crazy. Wow. Freddie could look
0: like a child very easily, so she would still wear her hair in braids. But that childlike
2: appearance also makes it more difficult for Freddy to do some work. Because there were women, if they would walk down the street with a child, it was not very suspicious, so then they would bring these children to safe houses. This work was
0: done mostly by Truce and by Hani Shaft because they were fair-haired, red-haired. Freddy was dark and was so small that it was dangerous she could quite easily be taken for a jewish child herself Mm. and so she could not do that work because they were very worried that she would be caught and and taken as a jewish child herself
1: Hmm.
0: now this work might seem so much less traumatic than you know murdering people yeah but the girls hated it they hated
2: doing this work But that was very traumatizing because it didn't always go well. Truce recalled an example where she uh, was in a boat at some point with some Jewish children and then the the boat was bombed by the Germans. All the children just fell into water and drowned. Truce, she never really minded uh, to talk about the resistance work, but this was really something that she... She often remained silent because it was just simply too painful to, to talk about. They did it
0: because it needed to be done and they could do it Ugh. more safely than the men.
2: But... Honey had said that all the, this work with the Jewish children only makes me cry. I prefer to fight. Oh...
0: So again, destabilizing those. Mm. What do we want to think about this work that they did? Mm. Yes, they should be doing the work saving the children, but they didn't think that. They didn't want to do that work. They found that work much more deeply traumatizing. Yeah. Ugh. Not to say that the murdering
1: wasn't traumatizing. It was. Yeah. I can see how I would feel like rather than constantly trying to save the children and losing half the time why don't we go to the source who is doing this right. to the children get rid of them
0: yeah mm. exactly yeah you know i worked in an orphanage in china for f- 4 years and it was it was important and so i did it every week i was there mm it gutted me. I couldn't do anything else on the days that I yeah. did that. I went in the morning to the orphanage, and the rest of the day, I just had to sort of recover. Mm-hmm. The, the by proxy trauma yeah. Yeah, witnessing yeah. these things was worse than many of the bad things that have happened to me in my life. So I I completely understand this, even though it seems very counterintuitive. Yeah. They also
2: did more traditional espionage type of work. And they would also commit acts of sabotage. So they would attack and bomb railways, for example. They would also map out coastal defenses, like for example, the Atlantic wall. So they would giggle a little bit and flirt and mm. try to coax information out of them. And everything they're doing, they're
0: better at it because nobody expects girls to be doing it even though they are notorious and famous as these assassins, people still, you know, we've talked about this, when people don't expect women to be able to do something. Yeah. It doesn't matter how many times they do it, they won't believe it's going to happen again. (laughs) It doesn't matter how many women (sighs) defeat Rome. Women can't (laughs) defeat Rome. So we are not prepared for it when it happens. Yeah. And I, I, for some reason, I just love that. I love it. Yeah, <laughs> It's the best revenge, right? Yeah, the best. Just use your condescending underestimation of my talents. Yes. To defeat you. Oh, I love it. <laughs> they are really great at thinking on their feet. There's so many great stories in this book, but this is one of my favorite stories just because it illustrates that sort of fearless bluster, understanding the psychology of the fact that they're women and that people don't know how to respond to what's going on and therefore will just choose not to do anything. So this is immediately following a failed assassination attempt. They shot the target twice, but he survived. The military police arrive and they have not been able to get away. So they flee to a cafe. Truce pulls out her gun and shouts, Gentlemen, your attention, please. We're coming in now, but when the Germans come in, we've been here all afternoon. If you do not behave the way we want you to, and we're on our way to heaven, we will take a few of you with us. (laughs) So they grab a drink to make their breath smell of alcohol, and they pretend to be drunk. Oh, my gosh. And when the German officer investigating comes in, truce hangs on his neck flirting and groping in a super drunk and (sighs) obnoxious way and her behavior was so annoying and so vulgar that he left the cafe
1: because he was offended wow (laughs) amazing how is this not a movie right
0: And then on March 21st, 1945, less than a month before the liberation of the Netherlands. Yeah, I was just going to say that. And well after the Nazis knew they were going to lose the war. Yeah. Both Freddy Overstegen and Hanny Schaft were independently stopped at checkpoints by the Nazis. <laughs> Freddy was cycling through the city. She heard people screaming, raid, raid. So she quickly detoured into the forest, hid the gun that she was carrying in her bag in the forest. When she reached the checkpoint and was asked for her papers, she replied that she didn't have any because she wasn't 15 years old yet. She's 19 years old at this point. Oh, okay. But she still looked so young that they believed her Mm. and they eventually let her go. Hani was stopped at another checkpoint in the city and was forced to open the bags on her bicycle where the Nazis discovered hidden resistance newspapers that she was attempting to deliver to another part of the city.
2: Mm. So she was arrested, uh, but still the Germans had no idea who who she was. She had her, her gun with her. The the Germans only discovered that uh, later on during interrogation. And then uh, they saw the the red roots uh, from her hair. Then they knew for sure, okay, this is the girl with the red hair that we've been looking for for so long.
0: When Truce and Freddie realized that Hani had not come home, they were beside themselves, obviously, and they alerted the resistance groups throughout the city. And soon heard that a girl matching Honey's description had been taken into custody the night before. Mm. They immediately began forming plans to rescue Honey. They they alerted all of the resistance workers who were undercover in various prisons. And Truce dressed as a German nurse and went to the prison trying to get access to Honey shaft. But she had gone to the wrong prison. And nobody was able to get Honey out or even locate her for the next three weeks. Hmm. But on May 5th, the country was finally liberated. So the prisoners are all being released all across the city and Truce waited outside the prison all day with a bouquet of flowers, ready to welcome back their beloved prisoner. But Hani never came out. Mm.
2: And unbeknownst to everyone... On April 17th, not even three weeks before the end of the war, Hanneschaft was taken out of her cell and brought into the dunes and was executed there. Both allies and Germans had agreed not to execute anymore. But
0: as a final act of vengeance yeah. for the way this red-haired girl had terrorized the Nazi occupiers for five years, they killed her anyway and she had been dumped in an unmarked grave where she had been shot so the war is over but the first news that truce and freddie overstegen learn in this new free future is that their comrade in arms honey is dead hmm. in november of that year honey was given a state reburial with hundreds of other dutch resistance heroes Huh the entire Dutch government and the Queen herself were there. The war is over. And it's time to move on. But you can't move on. No. When you have done the things that these girls have done. Now, of course, we would say PTSD. Right. They yeah. have nightmares, trauma. They can't sleep. They are deeply, deeply wounded. And... As soon as the war is over, a new pressing agenda emerges for the Dutch government, and that is the fight against communism and the rise of the Cold War. And suddenly, living heroes who have communist ties are dangerous. Oh. Uh... Dead heroes like Hani Shaft. Right. Are conveniently pure and easy to honor. Yeah. But messy, complicated, damaged heroes, yeah. like the Overstegen sisters. Right. And especially in times of like this, of post-war, yeah. everyone wants and needs probably simple, clear lines. Yeah. Truce and Freddie's mother was a communist activist before the war. Mm. They both have communist ties and clear communist leanings, which in the face of fascism was a plus, right? Almost all of the resistance groups are growing out of or linking into communist activism. It means that the country cannot acknowledge the work that Truce and Freddie did and keep this narrative that especially the royal family are trying to keep. So after the war, Truce over becomes an artist And she is a very public figure. She's speaking out publicly when she can about what they did, about what happened. She's especially active in honoring Hanyshaft's legacy, but she's continually silenced and shut down. And as time goes on, people are less and less interested in hearing about resistance work. Yeah because it is so linked to the things that are currently very dangerous in their own sort of McCarthyistic version of anti-communism and blacklisting. Mm -hmm. It is such a bizarre, upside-down kind of world that these women have to live in now.
1: Yeah.
2: Freddie, she uh, she lived a more secluded life and really focused on her children. She would hardly ever talk about the war. And her husband also kind of protected her from all the nightmares and and all the memories. So they would literally just leave the country for a couple of months.
0: Freddie especially cannot cope
2: with the celebrations
0: around Liberation Day, all of these memories of everything that happened. And eventually her husband buys a trailer and they leave the country Mm. for several months every year to get Freddie away from any reminders of what happened, of what happened to Honey Shaft, of the war work, of all of it. Wow. So, while Honey gets a royal reburial in a public monument, Truce and Freddie Overstegen are erased almost overnight mm-hmm. from the narrative. These erasers really, really bothered Freddie, especially she was extremely bitter and rightfully so. Yeah, about the way that they were treated. And not just these women, but everyone involved in the resistance. Mm. Many, many people who worked with resistance were punished for being associated with communists and even just people who ran safe houses because they worked with the communists decades earlier by hiding children. It is, it's a really disturbing end to this story. And we, I I really don't like it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Their lives are at this awkward intersection. We like stories with clear-cut good guys and bad guys, you know, resistance fighters, good guys, Nazis, bad guys. That's very clear. And then by the 1950s, everybody's going communists, bad guys. And then people who were clearly good guys before now seem allied with the bad guys. That's too messy for our... Yeah. Simple narratives. Yeah.
0: And we, we already are uncomfortable thinking about what they did anyway. So it's right. much easier. Yeah. To just pretend that never happened.
1: Oh, man. This actually takes me right back to our very first episode, episode one, because I mm. would love to ask these two sisters the question that I asked you in episode one, which is, should we mm. fight for a cause? You know, after everything they gave and the cause that they believed in, and then becoming so disillusioned with you know, mm. all systems and all authority and everything. I would love to know from their perspective, should we fight for causes or not?
0: Well, um, we can't ask them, but Sophie Poldermans did. Yay. When she was 16 years old, Sophie Poldermans wrote a paper in high school on
2: Hani Shaft for her history class. But I, I really dived into the, the topic and then uh, through a friend of my father I discovered uh, Trish's contact details. So I, I just called her up and she invited mm. me uh, over for an interview. And it was a special bond grew from there. She really trusted me with her story because uh, mm. I was the next generation. And she introduced me to her sister, Freddie. She asked me to be the the keynote speaker, the the National Hannes Hoft commemoration. So that's what I did when I was 17. (laughs) (laughs) I worked with them in in this board for for 10 years. And I personally knew both women for, for 20 years. So they always trusted me with their stories.
0: Wow. So she had this long interview with Truce Overstegen at the same age that Truce was when she joined the resistance. Ah. And Truce seems to have recognized a kindred spirit, and she became one of the only people to get a firsthand record of this story from the sisters who actually lived it. Wow. When Freddy Overshagen died in 2018, Truce died in 2016. Wow. I know. Very recent. This history is not history. This is yeah. very, very recent. So when Freddy died, there was a sudden burst of interest in the US about this story. The teenage girls who seduced and killed Nazis, this great sort of schadenfreude yeah. hero story. And that's when Sophie Poldermans decided it was time to share the real story. Because there was a a huge demand for English information about this story, and she really felt a need to share
2: the real story. Uh, Knowledge about World War II is is fading, and and nowadays we see this shocking increase in in Holocaust deniers. So I thought, no, 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 I need to write down this story right now.
0: And so she started a website, Sophie's Women of War, to tell these stories the way these women spoke of it, which was their battle to stay human, to stay ethical and to stay good Mm. in the face of evil. The book is amazing. We've only touched on a tiny fragment of this story. (laughs) What Truce recognized in Sophie Polderman's was that kindred spirit of a girl who wants to change the world, who feels the responsibility to do something. And she strongly encouraged Sophie Polderman's to follow that. Huh. Did not encourage her to become an assassin, obviously, but (laughs) she was very clear that the world is failing at being human. And that she had so much hope for that rising generation to take on that mantle of fighting... The forces of evil, fighting the forces of racism that allowed the Nazis to treat other human beings the way that she saw. And she was making sure that the teenage girl in front of her knew that the fight wasn't over. Mm. I I don't think we can say as much what Freddie would say, because Freddie didn't talk about these things very much. But Freddie herself, although she disengaged from the political work. She was always active in anti-war work for the rest of her life. That's interesting.
1: It seems like those two sisters maybe landed in two different places, one of them saying the fight isn't over, keep on fighting, and then the other one saying no more fighting.
0: Yeah, that, that, (laughs) you know, they live through the exact same experience, but they land in very different places. and. I've sat with this story for a long time I've read this book several times now and I've, I've been sitting with the story trying to figure out how to tell this
1: mm-hmm.
0: And I think I guess what I want to land in is to me It's remarkable and praiseworthy when teenagers do what they believe needs to be done to make the world better and mm-hmm. I think it is one of the most devastating indictments of a society in general when it allows itself to get to the point where children have to be begging the adults around them Mm. to make the world a livable place.
1: That is such an interesting idea, too, because I feel like from the historical perspective, change always comes from the youth and old people are rarely going to change the world.
0: Yeah, I'm resigned to the fact that that is going to be what happens. But man, I wish that it didn't
1: have to be that way.
0: I don't want mm. a world where my kids have to be an Overstagen yeah. or a Sophie Scholl or
1: a Greta Thunberg. Do children feel obliged to put themselves on the altar these days because we have a cultural narrative that that's how you change the world? Mm. What if our society said, you can do it in ways other than laying down on the altar? Hmm.
0: Fascinating. It's complicated and messy. That's that's the tagline for basically every class I ever yeah. teach at the end. It's it's complicated and messy. And and that's where we
1: land here. It's complicated and messy, and I don't know the oh, answer. Oh, that's perfect. It brings us full circle <laughs> back to your first question. What does it mean to be right. human? <laughs> it's complicated and messy. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: I guess in the end, to me, this is a, it's a legacy to be honored, but it doesn't mean that it is a circumstance that I can cheer. Yeah.
1: It's, it's an incredible story. It's heartbreaking. Yeah.
2: It's amazing. This is a romantic image that we have, but they yeah. were definitely no cowgirls yeah. <laughs> and they were traumatized by it for the rest yeah. of their lives. So they had to pay the price
0: thanks to Sophie Poldermans. If you want to learn more about Truce and Freddie Overstegen, Hanny Schaft, the Dutch Resistance, and everything we've talked about today, you can find links, photos, resources, and more at our website, whatshernamepodcast.com. There you can also get a copy of Sophie Polderman's wonderful book, Seducing and Killing Nazis. You can also sign up to become a patron and help us create more episodes of the podcast and get great rewards like cross-stitch patterns, trading cards, and more.
1: You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, where we post lots of photos each week. Music for this episode was provided by Paula Robison, Mariko Anraku,
0: Emmett Fenn, Esther Abrami, Brent Hugh, and Amanda Setlick-Wilson.
1: Our theme song was composed and performed by Daniel Foster Smith. What's Her Name
0: is produced by Olivia Mickle and Katie Nelson, and this episode was edited by Olivia Mickle.